listening to the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. Uh, so the hunting season's kind of winding down. Um, deer season anyways, kind of in Canada, across North America. Yeah, only a few days left. For a rifle season anyways. Yeah, bow here goes another 20 after December 1st. December 20th, so you're going to go give archery season a try if you got some time? Hopefully hopefully I got some time to get out and throw some tree stands up, sit in the tree stand, but pretty busy busy right now. It'd probably go put some tree stands up just in time for like that minus 30 arctic cold snap. No kidding. I did that a few years ago. Yeah. Sat up there, dawn till dusk in minus 30. I look like the Michelin man. Yeah. I had my white camo on, but I had everything I own underneath of it. <laughs> the one thing when you're doing that, sitting in a tree stand in December and it's cold like that, you actually come to really appreciate that plastic Gatorade bottle that you take to <laughs> take a leak in. Because it becomes a hot water bottle. bottle. After you take a whiz, you sit there and you hug this thing (laughs) and and reabsorb the latent energy back into your body. Man. Yeah, hopefully hopefully that super cold staves off till the bow season. It has its advantages because every little sound that a deer makes, you can hear it. But it yeah, has it's usually a, dead quiet. It has a disadvantage in trying to stay warm, but every little thing you do, the sound is also amplified when it's super yeah. cold. So, And uh, all of a sudden, you know, you're sitting there, your muscles get cold and tense and stuff, and then trying to do like pull back on a 60-pound yeah. bow, all of a sudden you feel... Pretty weak. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a consideration. Um I, I always hate to say that like, oh, hunting season's winding down. It was a good season because small game hunting in a lot of places in Canada actually carries on through the winter. Yeah. And I'm a huge advocate of getting people out, taking up the opportunity to hunt small game. Uh, yesterday I was out at the range with the 22 and I ran a couple of boxes of brand new 22 ammunition through. They're the copper polymer bullets. Um so uh, non-lead 22 caliber so getting ready for some snowshoe hare hunting there's places in Canada I believe in uh, Alberta where their grouse season goes actually quite late no no way Um, when I was a kid when I lived in northern British Columbia we had a ptarmigan season oh yeah that went into February and uh, grandpa and I used to put snowshoes on Uh, there was this bush road that kind of went over a big mountain pass that was plowed and we'd go out and throw the snowshoes on and go walk around and yeah. kind of the willow high country and um so wherever you are in canada um don't call this the end of your hunting season get out and uh and do some small game hunting um, yeah, i mean ducks ducks go till the 23rd here yep yep that's right um so there's still waterfall uh, so i mean hunting. we still have like a month a month of hunting left. waterfall hunting yeah Paul was telling me that uh, geese hunting over in the Creston Valley is phenomenal right now. So Yeah, actually, I saw um, uh, Brandon uh, was over in Creston with his family, and they got like 40 geese the one day. Yeah. Showed pictures at their farm video. He's like, what plucking 40 geese looks like. And the whole ground and their entire property is just like feathers just oh, everywhere. Geez. 
the neighbors are going to like that when the wind comes up. Um, yeah, I mean, the other thing that's cool about this, which small game hunting, I think, um, cause not everybody waterfowl hunts, you should, um, because you've got a longer season. So, uh, get into waterfowl hunting is you can combine, I think, winter activities with small game hunting. So snowshoeing, even if you got snowmobiles, you can run way into the backcountry, put some snowshoes or skis on and then go, you know, grouse, ptarmigan, snowshoe hare hunting or whatever. And, and, uh, I think that's kind of cool. Um, yeah, if you're into totally. that sort of stuff. And I always believe if you're out there doing any type of, uh, activity, a winter activity, if you've got a rifle or shotgun in hand when you're doing it, for me anyways, it just completely changes how I'm interacting when I'm out there. Uh, cause I feel like I'm way more observant Yeah, and I'm seeing what's happened. I'm learning about the animals. I'm understanding their relationship to different types of habitat. And that's always seems to be the case whenever I have a firearm in my hand. I just think differently when I'm out there. So, um, yeah, give it a try. I did a podcast with Dylan, uh, the Eat Wild podcast the other night, and we had a good conversation about, uh, small game hunting. So that should Mm. be... Uh, coming out pretty soon if it's not already out uh, when you're listening to this podcast. So um, be sure to uh, go check out uh, Dylan's Eat Wild podcast uh, if you're a new hunter and want to kind of talk about small game hunting and and progression into big game hunting. What oh, yeah. what should you that's start cool. with? That's cool. Yeah, so that's I'm not going to say anything more and take Dylan's thunder, but I had a blast doing that podcast. Nice. He is so fun to talk to. Yeah. Um, so just on the podcast circuit, uh, I did a podcast with April Volke on her into the backing podcast, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that was released that in one. October on, uh, grip and grins. So, uh, if you're kind of interested in that topic, there was three of us guests on it. That was, that was a lot of fun. Uh, I, I, so there's this, I think there's this new thing out there that's replacing grip and grins. And I'm calling it sitting serious hunting oh, photos. Oh, the very like somber. Yeah, it's like you sit on the ground, cross-legged, beside your animal, and you got this real serious look on it. Kind of like you know the old black and white pictures from yeah. the eight, when when you took a picture, they were in their Sunday best, and was, everybody was a... serious. Like nobody was happy back then. And I understood those old black and white pictures were like that because getting a photograph done, like in the olden days, mm-hmm. was a very serious thing. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, anyways, that seems to be the new thing: the sitting serious photographs. Yeah. So, um, they're pretty pretty tasteful, <clears throat> I think. Yeah. But it it's kind of the pendulum, like. People do the grip and grins and they're happy and they got these big smiles and they get slammed for like, oh, look at the psychotic hunter. He's so happy. He killed this beautiful animal and stuff. And it's like, no, he spent like 12 days and he's really happy and he's got a freezer full of meat. He's smiling because hunting is fun. You know, he's not smiling because the animal died. He probably went through his, Mm -hmm. you know, his, uh, you know, his reverence and paying respects and stuff like that. But it's like nothing wrong to smile. Um, But these new sitting serious, um, they look pretty good, but it seems to make it look like, I don't know, serious pictures can also make you look grumpy. Yeah. And then the pendulum's going to go the other way going like, no, they're not even happy or whatever. (laughs) You know? They go through all this effort and kill an animal and they're not even excited about it and stuff, yeah. that, you know, and it's like, God, 
leave us alone. Um, uh, podcast circuit as well. Uh, earlier this fall, I was a guest on <clears throat> Ian Sherwood's podcast called Connected to the Land podcast. Oh, that's right, yeah. So if you're interested in kind of that holistic view of sort of self-sufficiency, um, small-scale farming, gathering food, um, hunting was something he was interested in as well, uh, which is why I was on the podcast. Uh, go find Ian Sherwood's Connected to the Land podcast and, and start listening uh, to him, Canadian, uh, Eastern Canada. So it's kind of a podcast. He's sort of a journey of self-learning, um, big city guy, uh, learning about kind of like living off the land and being self-sufficient gardening oh, yeah, all cool. that kind of stuff so and i'm excited for ice fishing coming up so yeah. hopefully uh you know if you're not an ice fisherman um and but you like wild foods and stuff i encourage you to get into it yeah <clears throat> as a uh as a pretty hardcore fly guy um, i've never been uh never been too big on the ice fishing but mm. last last winter a buddy and i went out and uh and we did some, caught some burbot, and then we cooked it up a little bit ago. And I'll, I'll go out and do that again because that burbot is fantastic. Yes, yes. Holy smokes! I want, I want to come on that trip too. It's so. the best, best freshwater fish that I've ever. What had. time of the year was that? That was right before we went down. That was the night before we went to do the live podcast. Okay, so early January. Kind of right before I think it was COVID. End of January, we did the podcast, wasn't it? Like the thirtieth. Yeah. So, anyways, like bourbon season is is January. Yeah. Bourbon season. Okay. It's because uh, they they start to kind of like group up for their mating season. I yeah. Believe is what's the, happening. The one lake, but there's there's a couple others that don't close. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The, the main, small ones. The, the main one stays or or <clears throat> closes on the. Uh, yeah. The thirtieth. To or protect whatever. the protect the, the the breeding period but um if you follow me on instagram uh, a couple weeks ago uh i did some posts of making fish stock so i keep my heads and the skeletons from the fish that i catch ice fishing and then i made a bone stock soup stock out of the fish uh the recipe was from um hank shaw hunter gardener yeah. cook guy from down in the States, super famous. Um, I got his uh, fish stock recipe. It's got uh, seaweed in it and kind of almost ends up like miso soup. No, oh, yeah, <clears throat> The yeah, Japanese yeah. soup. That's cool. <clears throat> and um, it, it's really quick. It takes less than an hour to do. And then I made fish chowder from that yeah, earlier that. this week. That and good, so hey? the, if you would have went to like Maine, and the high-end restaurant and got their premium lobster chowder, Atlantic lobster chowder or whatever, award-winning, like. I think it would have been like that. Wow. It was so good. Nice. One of the key ingredients I thought that, because I modified the, uh, the chowder recipe, uh, was last winter I smoked some perch paintbrush soy sauce on it, did a cold smoke so that it was still moist. Uh, we made... Um, per- uh, sushi out of it, a sushi roll. And then I had some left over and I put that smoked perch in this chowder and oh my, it was so good. Wow. So given that you're allergic to seafood, like the crustaceans mm-hmm. and, but if you love the taste of seafood, you will like this chowder. Yeah, so you need good. to catch some fish. And one yeah. of the things about ice fishing 
uh, for food, because uh, this is a wonderful way to augment what you have in your freezer from your game fishing, is don't get hung up on all this giant fish stuff. Like I'm, I'm fishing in some small lakes. One's just 10 minutes up the road from me. And I am catching perch that are just like little things, like six inches big, whatever. And it's like, you can fill it those and you can, yeah. And, and it, over the course of a winter time, it adds up. Yeah. And I catch the occasional like bigger rainbow and a little bigger kokanee and stuff. But most of them are bass and perch that are just kind of like smallish size. And it's like. I'm, I'm looking at it like, uh, it's food and it's accumulating and fish and chips and chowders and fish tacos and stuff. The fact that they're small little fillets doesn't matter, but it's just great. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. um, take up ice fishing and if all you have access to is some lakes with some smaller fish in it and you're allowed to catch and keep them, um, do, do it. it, Yeah, do it for sure. Uh, Cool. So back in mid-November, um, I posted uh, some stories on my Instagram feed, uh, on the story feed, kind of alluding to this podcast. And it was about uh, my Remembrance Day hunt and the buck that I got on Remembrance Day and kind of, um, yeah, just kind of um, some some things around that whole experience that I kind of wanted to turn into a podcast here and kind of talk about, I think talk about a topic in hunting that is maybe shunned or just not, not talked about very much. So I'm going to kind of start here with the story of the Remembrance Day Bucks. And um, it goes back to, the story goes back farther, but for me, I come into the story kind of as um, later into my teens when great grandpa Hall gave me uh, some memorabilia from his brother, Ernie, who was killed in World War One. So when you went into the war, um, each soldier had a formal picture taken of them in their uniform. And that's kind of what they sent back to their families and and that sort of thing. So I have, uh, my grandfather gave me uh, the picture of his brother um, in his World War I uniform. Um, He was pretty young. I think he may have been only like 19 or 20-ish, which is freaking scary. And he also gave me his pocket watch, which was on him when he was killed. And the face is cracked and the time's frozen. And he he gave that to me, sort of doing that thing that he did, sort of wanting to give away things that were important to him while he was still alive, right? Mm -hmm. And and there was um, a number of things that he gave to different people in the family. He had another brother that was killed in the war that uh, he did the same thing with um, um, some other uh, people in the family. So anyways, um, I've had that and I've had that, um, you know, since, since I was, was a teen. And so the story really kind of starts with my great uncle Ernie. So he was, uh, sent overseas. He was from, uh, Kimberley, British Columbia. He was sent overseas, um, to fight in world war one and he was wounded and he ended up in a hospital in France, um, recovering 
right around the time when the Allied forces had put together their strategy to invade and try to take Vimy Ridge. And basically that assault was so massive that they took soldiers out of the hospitals so that they had basically bodies to put on the front line, like literally. So I think he had been, uh, great uncle Ernie had been wounded in the leg and uh, he was, he, he, he was like ambulatory on stuff, but not, not like perfect. So anyways, um, he was put uh, uh, onto the allied forces that went, um, went to take Vimy Ridge. Uh, he survived all the waves of assault. So if you know your history, Vimy Ridge was kind of like the allies coming into the beaches, um, you know, and, and gunners and stuff on the ridges above, like just like taking soldiers down as they were trying to get onto the beaches and get a, get a stronghold on the beach and, you know, and, and this sort of stuff. And, uh, and he survived the various waves uh, of assaults and the allied forces were successful in, in capturing Vimy Ridge and he it was all over the battle was all over after days of doing it and he was um, surveying a section of the ridge with his commanding officer uh, when he was killed by a sniper that was still active on the battleground and it, he was he was shot at a long distance, but uh, Uncle Ernie was like big. He kind of like like me. That's where the lineage came from, the over six foot um, kind of thing. And his commanding officer uh, was a bit shorter than him, and of course, like the bigger the two targets, and and he was killed. So, I started doing this thing years ago where on Remembrance Day, I bring out the picture and the watch and, and you know, and set it out and, and um, you know, and as part of my sort of Remembrance Day thing. And a couple of years ago, uh, I think it was 2018, um, Carly, my, yeah. my daughter, your sister, um, came home from school uh, to go on a hunting trip and uh, it was her chance to try to get her very first deer uh, we went out did some shooting with a rifle everything was good did a quick evening hunt and then remembrance day was the very first kind of full, full day, day yeah. that we went out and we hiked way back into an area a couple kilometers back into um sort of a, um, a vehicle closure area uh, where we go and so later in the afternoon we'd hunted all in the morning later in the afternoon uh, we were kind of sitting there watching a you know a bit of an opening as the later part of the day was was coming, just kind of sitting watching you know for deer maybe to come out for an evening feed. And I just took a few moments and I took a picture I had of um, Great Uncle Ernie, his service picture, and that watch, and I posted it on my social media, and just did a little Remembrance Day thanks you know. Mm-hmm. you know, in remembrance of and, and, uh, and that sort of thing. And then I spent kind of a, just kind of a few minutes sort of with those thoughts and, you know, thinking about somebody that was, you know, my relative and, you know, that sort of thing. And, um, I actually kind of like, if you want to call it like a prayer, I kind of like asked great uncle Ernie, mm-hmm. I said, if you're watching and you have any way of helping me get Carly a buck? Yeah, yeah. Like, 
it's not for me. It's, it's for mm-hmm. her. It's her first experience. She only has a couple of days. And I, I kind of put that out there for a little bit. And then I sort of made this call that we were going to move from the location we were and just go back a hundred yards and watch kind of a little smaller opening just behind us for the last little bit of, of daylight. And so I, I got up and Carly got up and we started to walk up the little bit of the hill behind us. And just as my eyeballs were kind of crusting the hill a little bit and I could see into this opening, we were going to sit and watch the setting sun of the evening was shining on this little opening, like a little small patch of it. And there was this little sunlit patch and in it was standing a buck. Yeah. Mm. A three point buck. And, uh, so anyways, I uh, got Carly set up on her shooting sticks and she got that deer and that, that was, that was <laughs> pretty profound. Mm-hmm. Like they're just, uh, I felt there was something happened there. So this year, this year I went, uh, uh, out by myself on Remembrance Day and I sort of was going into this area again, hiking a couple kilometers back in, you know, away from the roads and stuff and just slowly sneaking through the trees. And I did a sit for a little while, kind of just let things calm down and watch and see if some deer were moving around and stuff. And when I was sitting there, I did a Remembrance Day post um, again. And what I did is I posed a question and answered it, which I kind of thought would maybe was in people's minds of, is it respectful to hunt on Remembrance Day? Mm-hmm. And if you want to go back and read the post, just just find me on Instagram and, and read that. Because um, this seems to always come up every year. It's like, should the Christmas stuff come out before Remembrance Day and these sorts of things? And a lot of the arguments sort of seem to be, it's like these things that we have that we're blessed to have um, is why people sacrifice themselves yeah. to, to go into the world wars, right? It's like, that's what they want to, would have wanted. And for me, I believe my great uncle Ernie would have said, yeah, go hunting. That's mm-hmm. why, that's why, you know, I, I did this. And, uh, you know, he came from a hunting family and a trapping family and stuff. And, uh, so anyways, I, again, I, I spent a little bit of time with those thoughts, you know, thinking about him, reflecting on that question. And, you know, then I moved on uh, from that sitting place. I found some buck scrapes that were made just before I got there first thing in the morning. And I went, okay, it's a good sign. I went into the forest. I did some rattling. I sat there for the day. Um, nothing kind of, real, you know, really happened. And then I got to the point where I was like, I was cold. I had to get up and move. So I, I delayed that as late into the afternoon as I could. And so I went for a little sneak uh, through the forest onto a bit of a ridge where things were a little bit more open. And I went and did another sit for a couple of hours, uh, tried a bit of rattling, no luck. But the whole time I was kind of sitting there, I just had this feeling that I needed to go back and sit at those scrapes right at the end of the evening. And it's like, of all the places I could have gone and different places and stuff, there was just this 
this voice inside me that was just like, work your way back and get set up there for the Mm -hmm. evening. And so that's what I did. Uh, Worked my way back down there. I sat, got a little, little spot set up so I could see the scrapes were about 60 yards from me. And right at dusk, there was a little flicker uh, in the dark forest beside me. Threw my binoculars up, just saw the top of some antlers go by. And so I got myself ready and um, this buck kind of walked out in that little little opening like headed towards the scrapes when uh when I got it and so all 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 this kind of like come together um Carly's story you know sort of maybe connecting on a higher level you know that that day um being guided you know that that sort of feeling just kind of hit me again and and um so so that's you know, what, uh, what precipitated the Instagram story and, and kind of wanting to maybe, uh, tell the story and transfer this into something that, uh, you know, maybe of meaning, uh, to y'all that are, that are listening. You know, I, I've come to the stage, uh, in my life and in my hunting career and stuff that I do think that there is more to hunting and being a hunter and animals and our relationship between hunting and being a hunter and these animals that we end up harvesting than just, you know, the raw fact of being in the right place at the right time and having a weapon and taking, you know, an animal. I, I, I believe there's more to it. And I think there's more out there than just, just biology and technology meeting together to, you know, to, to fill a freezer, fill your tag. And, um, I read this book years ago. Um, it's about archeology. span It's one of the areas that kind of interests me. And this is a book it's called relational archeologies. Uh, it's a collection of essays written by a whole bunch of different archeologists, but, um, relational archeologies, the editor is Christopher Watts, uh, if you want to look up this book. And basically what it is, it's it's a bunch of archaeologists that are talking about their work in archaeology and trying to understand the relationship that past cultures had yeah. with animals as well as things, as well as objects. Um, but I, I'm kind of zeroing in on on the relationship with wildlife, uh, animals that, that particularly that, that they hunted. And, uh, there's a passage in here. I'm just going to read from the book that kind of, uh, is starting to bring a bunch of this stuff together for me. So, so like I said, the book is, is these archeologists are exploring, you know, their work, uh, and looking at artifacts and contextual situations in archaeological sites and trying to understand how past humans related to to wildlife. So this is the passage. Humans are, of course, important, but their ways of relating to things are generally less amenable to analysis than their dietary habits or the products of their labor. So what that sort of means is in the field of archaeology, like tens of thousands of years after the fact, 
all archaeologists really have to understand past humans is stuff they left behind, which is the stuff that didn't disappear, yeah. like lithics, stone tools, um, or the bones and stuff of camps and whatever that showed this is what they ate. So they could understand dietary ha habits and the stuff that they made that didn't, um, you know, decompose. So the passage goes on to say, Landscape looms large in big game hunter studies, but the cultural wealth of human nature relations has often subsumed with the narrow analytical view of hunting as an activity that occurs as part of a definitive and rather constraining set of natural and cultural parameters. And yet, history and ethnography inform us that big game hunting is a worldview so old, so profound, that, is that it has defined the trajectory of human relations with nature and the cosmos. While we may never fully understand the true complexities of this trajectory, we can begin, humbly, by looking at hunting as a network of interactions among people, prey, place, and a number of natural forces and intangible entities. So that, that really struck me that, you know, they're looking at humans who hunted animals off the land, got human civilization to where it was because of hunting, recognizing that throughout human history, the natural forces and intangible entities played a role in understanding how hunting shaped the trajectory of humans as a species in the way that we relate to the natural world. And I think this is kind of hitting on, mm -hmm. you know, the story I just told. Um, and, you know, and it goes for me anyways, it, it, this intangible entity sort of aspect of hunting goes beyond just like the Remembrance Day story. There, there's a number of other things that have happened to me over my lifetime. Uh, an experience with a buck uh, with my grandfather uh, after he had passed away, um, you know, some different things, experiences with an elk that I think had to do with communicating something to me that I needed to know like there's been a number of these things that have that have happened to me while while I've been hunting that um you know it's just kind of you know what what I what I want to talk about here and you know there's there's all these arguments kind of out there about you know trying to always sort of defend hunting um you know you see the arguments you know that hunting is part of it's natural. Like we're part of the environment. We're yeah. part of the system. We're not separate from it. Um, humans have always hunted. Um, it's been part of humans. It's how humans got to where we are, etc. today and today, uh, you know, got here, uh, today as, as we are, uh, is because that humans hunted in the past and is why humans still want to hunt today. So there's kind of all of that sort of stuff that's, that's out there, but this aspect of talking about hunting these these natural forces and intangible entities, I'll just call it, um, that were profoundly a part of hunting in different cultures and civilizations throughout human history. Uh, I really think that's been lost in 
modern day conversations about hunting. And in, in my opinion, anyways, I, I think it's been, been lost. And yeah. I think there's some consequences to it. And I think there's some benefits of bringing this back into, you know, into the conversation, into, you know, your own personal way of, of thinking, uh, about, about things. So have you ever had any of those types of, uh, the, the one that stands out to me the most, I don't know if it's just cause of like, you know, an age thing. Like I, I haven't reflected back on those moments, but, um, the, the one that sticks out the most is the, uh, the, the, the day that I got my very first buck, that mule deer. Mm-hmm. And we were, uh, we were driving down the road. It's on going, your mom's birthday. Yeah. October 6th. We were driving down the road going to where we were going to hunt and we stopped cause we saw the, uh, the barred owl in the tree mm-hmm. and we stopped and we were watching the owl for, I don't know, probably a good three to five minutes just watching this thing. And all of a sudden it lifts off and goes plummeting towards the ground, hits the ground and then flies back up and it had a mouse in its talons and um kind of looking back at it like i've I've always kind of had just a sense that it was like the 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 forest was saying it's a good day to be a hunter today (laughs) and then a couple hours later we uh we um we found that four point mule deer buck and yeah and i got got my first buck you were 10 years old yeah first hunting season yeah yeah yeah, that's uh, I I, I yeah. do I do vividly remember that. I also vividly remember that relative to the size of the owl and the size of that was a mouse or a vole. I can't remember. Either way, um, and it just went oh and swallowed ate, ate the whole thing. <laughs> but yeah, I mean that that's an aside to this this um, kind of feeling like of what what that what that meant what that was saying and. And that kind of taps into a little bit of my experiences as well. And it's like, I'll, I'll talk about this a bit, but it, but it is kind of like it, it's being open to these experiences and being open to the fact that you're being given a message or mm-hmm. a signal or, or something and, and being open enough to read that and to act on, on, the forces that seem to be telling you to do something because of, of that signal or that message. And, mm-hmm. and I think, I think that's a, that's a big part of, I think what's been lost in hunting and what, what I'm kind of coming back to is, is, uh, is acting on what those signals and those, those cues are. And yeah. It's, it's, <clears throat> you know, even with, with fishing and I find even waterfowl, hunting um you never really have that that full sense that it's like like when you uh, i find it with turkey hunting like anything like that where you're actively out there hunting when when you are successful it's like every single decision up to that point throughout like your entire season was the right choice to get you there Mm. um you know with with waterfowl, I find like it's it's not a given that you're gonna have a successful day, but you're like, there's birds here, like 
it for me waterfowl hunting kind of ties a little bit more to like the fly fishing side of things where it's 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 um not as you know like i don't think after a day of fishing it's like wow like i made all the right choices to be successful you're just kind of like i had fun it was a great day we were out we had some good experiences but every single <clears throat> every single big game hunt even turkey like the the line between having a successful day and not is like so thin and it's often that like that that one sort of decision where you, like you said it's some sort of thing pulling you like you said with the scrapes or i've had it before where it's like you know what maybe i'll just i'll just go over here and then you're successful yep yeah yep yeah i mean that's that's one of the things i I, I think is really worth exploring is, is this, like, there's a portion of like when you go hunting and it's sort of like, it feels like you've made all the wrong decisions or it feels like, um, it's like, oh, so close. Yeah. All it had to do was just step one more step forward. It walked all that way and it stopped right there and it just needed to take one more step forward yeah. and it didn't. And it, and it, and there's a whole lot of experiences more often than not of these split seconds, you know, animals moving and it's going to go to that opening and you're trying to get like a line of sight to be able to make a clear mm -hmm. shot in the opening. You get there just as it's leaving the opening. Like there's this, it seems like sometimes there's this rhythm yeah. Where you're just, you're two seconds too slow or the animal doesn't make that mm -hmm. one extra step. And there, there's a tendency to see that as a, uh, as a, like as, as a failure, as a frustration, as a, as a, ah, you know, the universe is against me, you know, type. Yeah. I'm just not meant to like, you know. But I think if you reverse your thinking, what you just said is like, those things are, are, are the continuum. It, it's yeah. this network um, that that passage talked about, about these natural forces and these intangible entities, like you're being led in a direction mm -hmm. and those things are meant to be that way. They're, they're telling you something, they're, they're, they're leading you somewhere and I don't know if this has happened to you, but what tends to happen on the day that I get an animal, it's like the planets align. Mm -hmm. Everything from the moment you get up yeah. feels right. Totally. Nothing frustrates you. Nothing aggravates you about the, oh, I forgot to like grab this or my I almost forgot my binoculars or whatever. And you, and you start out that way. Nothing is like that. From, from the moment you wake up, you get out to where you want to go. Everything works out. You know, these beautiful walks in the woods, these sits. Um, your mind seems to be different. Uh, you seem to be present. You're calm. And when you do get that animal in that, that moment, in that situation, if you were to like say where I was standing and where that animal was, if I had to pre-plan 
exactly the perfect timing and scenario to be 100% perfect in that situation, that's exactly what happened the day I got the animal. I mm-hmm. did not have to force anything. Yeah. And that coupled with that, a lot of times for me anyways, seems to be that morning, you seem to know that today's the day you're going to get you, something. You do. You always sort of have that. I mean, Paige, when she got her buck a couple weekends ago, right, right from the get go, like it was after a big snowfall and you just woke up and it was like, it was one of those days that like, just even the weather, you knew you're like, it's going to be a good day just because there's going to be a lot of deer activity. It's right after a storm. You're like, it's, it's going to be good. And, um, and then when she got her buck, it was her, myself, and then, um, her best friend from college, um, her boyfriend was up for his very first, very first hunt from Vancouver. He wanted to come up and uh, experience it. And kind of, we all said at the, as we're driving back, we're like, both of them were like, I kind of felt like today was going to be a good day and we were going to get something. Yeah. I just, that's cool. And I, mean, I, I don't know if it's one of those things like, <clears throat> like if, if you go out and every time you go out, you're just like, we're going to get something today. And then when you don't, you just kind of forget about that thought. Yeah. And then when you do, you're like, oh, sweet. Like we were right. Like, I don't know if it's just like an ever lingering feeling or if it's actually just because, because I've, I've had it fishing before where you go out and you're like, oh, everything's going to be a good day. And then it's just like super slow and you get super frustrated. Yeah. And then when it is a good day, you're like, Oh, like I knew today was going to be a good day. Yeah. See, see, and that, I think, I think that's, that's tapping into the, in, into what's happening here is, is this feeling comes about unexpectedly and kind of in a natural way. Like, and, and, when you have the feeling and, and it hits you, part, part of my message here is like, is to be open to that and, and, and feel it and, and acknowledge it like that, that you are feeling this. Because to me, <clears throat> this thing is not, this is not like a, like a, like a mental kind of thing. It's not like, it's not like a sports team where it's like, come on, let's, yeah. 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 Who's going to win the game? Who's going to win the game? We are, you know, let's get it. Yeah. yeah. You know, like, like it's not a, it's not a pump you up. It's not no. a, it's not a, it, it, it's, it's not a like crank your tos- testosterone level up and then go out there and like tackle the deer and kill it. Like, like it's not a, you know, a, 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 a psych you up for the battleground type thing. Like it's sure that works in sports or in business or whatever. I don't, I don't think that's the thing in hunting. No. It's not a, it's not a psych yourself up like today's a day, you know, or whatever. It's, it, it just seems to like, just it's sort of like naturally happen in the air. You're just yeah, like, yeah. You're just. And, and that's why, that's why I love this passage. I mean, it, it's, it's talking about these natural forces and intangible entities and, and, uh, you know, uh, I feel there's something, there's something real there, um, that that's, you know, part of it. And, uh, like I said, I think, I think it's being lost, 
um, that aspect is being lost. It's, it's, you know, as I said earlier, I think it's, I think it's shunned, um, to kind of talk about, I don't even like to say it's like the spiritual side of hunting. Um, it, it's just, it's just talking about this relationship that you have with hunting and, and to animals and being open to the fact that, you know, it, it's a bit more than just biology meeting technology. Um, but, but I think it's, it's shunned, you know, to kind of have these types of conversations, I think, especially for men, mm-hmm. you know, to, 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 you know, talk about these, these types of things and these deep conversations in hunting. Um, you know, I think the focus tends to be on, you know, gear, tactical strategies in hunting, you know, the, 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 all of that kind of like, you know, fitness and types of backpacks and ballistics and, and the stuff's important, but I think there's too much, maybe too much reliance or too much emphasis on that stuff as being yeah. leading to a successful hunt when, when there's, there's this whole other element, this whole other world, let's put it this way, this whole other world that you have the ability to step into and become connected to like that passage said, this network of interactions between people, prey, place, natural forces and intangible entities. Like it's, it's this, this world that you, this natural world that you're stepping Mm -hmm. into and becoming in tune with the energy and the rhythms and, and maybe some guiding forces that, um, that are available out there maybe to certain people, maybe they're not available to, you know, to everybody. Um, but you know, so, so if I want to transfer this kind of, uh, into, you know, some advice, you know, for, for new hunters, um, I, I do believe this is an aspect of your, of your hunting world to maybe start exploring because I, I think there's actual, some benefits, mm-hmm. you know, for being a more successful hunter is, is starting to, to incorporate rituals before, during, and after your hunt, like actually starting to kind of think about, you know, a ritual aspect of hunting because that's, I believe that's in our DNA mm-hmm. and cause that goes back to the dawn of civilizations, rituals around hunting were profound and yeah i think there's still you know some indigenous hunters out there that are still incorporating and practicing um rituals from their culture into modern day hunting maybe they're using rifles like whatever i don't think that matters i don't think that matters at all the technology i think the ritual part and, and, and stepping into that world, uh, and, and whatever that takes. I think there are some people, um, indigenous hunters are doing that. I don't think very many non-indigenous hunters do, but, but I'm encouraging you to maybe like start doing that, like, you know, incorporating some, and, and it's individual. And, And I think the advice I have is like, just, just go with your feelings. Um, if it's something you need to do when you leave pavement and, you know, on a hunting trip and stop and, 
you know, do something, some ritual, some practice, an offer, like whatever you feel inside has meaning to step into the natural world. Um, I'd encourage you to give it a try and just mm-hmm. see, see how you feel. Um, you know, so, so before a hunt, a rituals during the hunt and after the hunt, um, you know, and, and it might be something like, I know a lot of people at the moment of harvesting an animal, like they'll stop and they'll reflect and they'll give thanks and stuff. And, and, you know, I think that's part of a ritual after the hunt, mm-hmm. you know, like there's. And I, and I think a lot of people understand that, but then it's like, what about before or during, you know, during the hunt? Um, these are just some things to, to think about. Uh, reflection is obviously like a big one yeah. and being a more reflective person comes with age because you're starting to sort of look at your own mortality. Um, so you do become more reflective than like, than when you're younger, but outside of that, like in your hunting career, to start using reflection um, on meaning in hunting, what were those things? Like you, you really have to allow yourself to, to think about those things, to think about those connections, the owl, the mouse, and this was a good day to go hunting. What was that thing that just sort of gave mm-hmm. you the feeling that you should go left rather than right and that led you to success take a moment because because you'll know it yeah you know that little fleeting kind of oh that was kind of and then and then but our culture is like ah you know ah, a bunch of you know what are you some kind of hippie you yeah. know like it's like you know Put your crystals away. Um, <laughs> Curtis doesn't like crystals. Um, I like crystals, but... From a geological perspective, yeah. not from a healing power perspective. Okay, sorry if that... Go ahead, use crystals in your rituals if that you know, if that, that helps you. Um, we'll just leave Curtis out of it. Um, but yeah, is spend some time allowing yourself to stop and think about those moments like, and, and just, and reflect on them and, and try to find meaning in those moments. If you allow yourself to do it and abs, honestly, you don't need to have to like tell the world about it. You can keep it private, but spend some time reflecting, look for the meaning, look for the signals, look for those, those cues that when you step into the natural world, that there are some natural forces and intangible entities that are there for you, but you need to unlock them. You need yeah. to be able to see them and because usually you feel them, but then you need to be able to acknowledge them and then explore them a little bit more. Um, because I'm, I'm, I'm recommending that you do that because I do believe if you do, you'll start to unlock some things that will take your hunting to another level. Oh, and I've, I've had it like the opposite way before where, where you're, you're like, you come into an opening and you're like, do I want to sit here or do I want to sit over there? And you kind of have that pulling feeling. It's like, you should go over there, but you're like, ah, I'm just going to go over here. You talk yourself out of it. Yeah, exactly. And then you sit in the other place and then all of a sudden something happens and you're like, damn it. Like if I would have been sitting over there where my gut feeling was, I probably would have got that buck like 
I've I've had that yeah. a few times where oh, you're for almost sure. like you're like you ignore that and you're like no 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 like my idea is better like this is this is where I want it to happen versus like where it's pulling you to where it like needs to happen. So that's kind of interesting to me. That's like that's a lesson, and you're being shown a hard lesson, and it's kind of like these intangible entities or natural <laughs> forces are going, you fuckhead, if you would have listened <laughs> yeah. to where we were pulling you, like we, we all worked hard to get this yeah. all set up. And then you, you ignored us. You ignored yeah. this signal we were giving you this gravitational pull to move you over here. Mm-hmm. So they just waltz the biggest buck that you've seen five years past you just just to just to emphasize <laughs> yeah. that you need to pay attention more. <laughs> so so yeah, reflection, um, reflection. Um, start to incorporate that in into hunting. And you know, beyond the memories of the hunt and like all those kinds of things, but reflecting on on those those things, those signals, those feelings, those moments and trying to understand uh, when they came, why they came, what they meant to you, um, and 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 how how and why you kind of came aware of those feelings, those forces, yeah. those pulls. Um, different people can can reflect different ways. Um, you can write about it. You can put it into jur- journals. Uh, that can become part of um, you know maybe some of the rituals um that you have when you know you go back out hunting but i think i think it's important to reflect a little bit um you know on those meanings or those intuitions and and it's important to reflect on them because like you just said to me they happen live real time while you're hunting Mm -hmm. these these feelings start to happen and when you feel and you stop and you reflect on it a little bit and say what is this pull what what at the end of the day between these choices where's the strongest pull and maybe night might not understand why that pull's happening but it's like if you reflect on it and you, and you acknowledge it and you go with it like it's, mm-hmm. it, it it's just it's a cool thing to incorporate in, into your hunting practice um some examples of things that i do um, this is something I actually, before kind of, I've had these sort of epiphanies I did way back, even when I was really young is when I needed to decide where to go hunting, it's like, I, I couldn't, I couldn't figure it out till the morning of going hunting. Yeah. And for whatever reason I used to have to sleep on it and I still do sometimes to this this day like there's a less there's a less strategic tactical google earth kind of like way of coming up with where to go hunting and there's this intangible aspect of i need a feeling Mm -hmm. of where feels right to go hunting today and so sometimes i have to sleep on it and in the morning i just have a sense of what feels right to do and and i go with that Mm-hmm. And that's happened to me like way back to when I sort of started hunting on my own around, yeah, that's, you know, 18, 19. I, I, I get the same thing too. And I've, I've done it before where it's like, I'll be in a place like, 
and and I'll I'll be thinking it's like I should almost be like somewhere like completely different and and I just kind of like you know I'll get up and walk back to the truck and then you know drive 45 minutes somewhere else and then you get out there and you're like okay like now like I'm not second guessing anything like this feels like Mm -hmm. the zone that works out pretty good to act on those feelings uh that would really suck if you just paid $2,800 to fly into a lake in northern (laughs) BC somewhere and you're like way by to the plane and then go hmm doesn't feel right yeah (laughs) (laughs) uh so yeah, just yeah, flies to another lake and just put it on the credit card. But maybe maybe that's one of those things too where you're just you go cuz it seems that I always go back to somewhere familiar that I know. Mm-hmm. It's like if I'm in a new place and it's it's going slow, then I always kind of try to revert back to some place that I know because I know how to hunt it. And and I think uh, um that's true and and I think uh, I do that too. I I tend to uh, gravitate to areas that I know um, that I have a certain feeling about it and I spend more of my time there and a smaller percentage of my time exploring new areas. Um, mm-hmm. I, do, I do do a bit of both, but for whatever reason, I'm drawn back to those ones. And in that passage from the book Relate, Relational Archaeologist that I, I uh, read a few minutes ago, there there's this this part here landscape looms large in big game hunter studies so meaning um in archaeological studies you know the work that they've done in understanding past hunting cultures is that the element of landscape of hunting and where you need to be on the landscape like the north american continent you know so to speak um was a huge part of big game hunting and I, I feel there's something to that that we experience mm-hmm. and, and draw yeah. back to, to certain areas because there's something about place and there's mm-hmm. something about land and there's something about when we've developed an intimate relationship with a particular area that you're drawn back to that for a reason. Mm-hmm. You know? or, or I've even find like it, it goes the other way too. Like, you know, you're, you're drawn to a place that you've never been before. Like you look up in some back basin and you're like, I need to go up there. Mm-hmm. You're like that, like that looks right. Like I just need to, to go there. Yep. And then you get up there and you're like, damn it, I should have gone somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> Call the plane. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so yeah, I think, you know, um, you know, when you're out there, when you're out there hunting and stuff, I mean, you know, being, um, being present, I find, is incredibly hunting and important in hunting is being present, being in the moment, embracing the place, being in the moment, uh, being there. As soon as I'm not present, I find like I blow an opportunity, like my mind's somewhere else. I'm thinking of something else. And then all of a sudden there was just something standing in front of you. Like I'm like, yeah. it could have been an elephant. How did you not see it sort of thing? Right. Mm-hmm. So when when you can get control of your mind and you can be present and you're being sort of in tune with some guiding forces, some, some feelings and intuitions and stuff, and you're going with that, that's making you present because you're, 
uh, and, and, and I did that earlier this year, uh, uh, I just all of a sudden instantly became aware of all the chatter of chickadees uh, in, in the forest. Mm. And I actually just sat there <clears throat> trying to understand what all that chickadee chatter meant because I had an experience with a chickadee that right outside here that actually landed on me. Hmm. Um, never had that happen before in my life. And there was a connection between that mm. and, and this. So, so there's things like that that can happen to you out there <clears throat> that, that is part of your, your hunting approach for a particular day is, is, is looking for, for what that's, what that's telling you, what that's feeling you and how that might, might be guiding you. And then having, um, the confidence to act on it, to see, to see where that takes you. Cause sometimes it, it leads you to some pretty cool, um, outcomes. Squirrels. I think, I think squirrels are the, okay, don't uh, listen to all the squirrels. <laughs> no, I, not that I think squirrels are the, uh, they're the, the, the narcs of the, the animal kingdom. I, I have it in my mind. It's like, you know, you get into a spot, you sit down, you're like, this is going to be good. And then there's the squirrel on the tree above you. That's like da, 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 doing the chattering thing. You pissed it off. And I, th I think the squirrel is basically like telling everything in the forest. Like, Hey, there's a dude over here. Don't <laughs> come this way. Cause it, I, I, I just have same with ravens or crows when they fly over top and they do that. Yeah. yeah. And you're like, Oh fuck. Like you just said, there's a guy over here. <laughs> <laughs> I also kind of think, in the natural world, squirrels might be the ones that everything ignore because squirrels are worried about everything, everything <laughs> and everybody and every needle that falls off the tree that the rest of animals are like, oh my God, is there anything else <laughs> they can bitch about today? <laughs> so I, I don't know. Um, but you know, I think the important thing is, is like, um, but well, I mean, speaking of squirrels, I actually find there are these signals in activity and bird activity in the trees and squirrel activity is, it seems to go, there's a switch. Yeah. And being in touch like with when it's, when it's on and when it's day. off. And it's like, what is that? Mm -hmm. And I find on a day where deer hunting or elk hunting is hard, sometimes the forest is dead. Mm -hmm. Like, like, I mean, did everything leave? Did every bird, every, everything. And yeah. then other days, things seem to be alive and there's a different aura about being out there. Um, and trying to take what that is and what that means, um, mm -hmm. you know, is, is, is part of what I do. You know, one of the other, you know, speaking of rituals, um, I have done this. Um, before a hunt, I've actually taken a moment prior to the hunt and almost done like a little prayer that's an ask hmm. for success that day. And I've usually done it with something. So this spring, the day we got the turkey, mm. I actually did that with all the turkey feathers that I stick in my visor from oh, yeah. every turkey that I've ever harvested and mm -hmm. actually feathers that I find from turkeys, I got them all in my visor. And I actually, before we left the truck, I actually stroked the feathers and hmm. said a little thing. And that was the day we got the turkey. Oh, no, cool. So, um, some other things that I do, 
like I said, a lot of people will give thanks and stuff, um, you know, after they harvest an animal. I do have a prayer um, that I have when I harvest an animal. I give thanks because I believe the animal was brought to me. It was mm-hmm. I was meant to harvest that animal. Um, but I have a prayer that's basically kind of around acknowledging and thanking the animal and sort of like releasing its spirit to mm-hmm. go into like the next world yeah. kind of thing. So, so I go, um, I go through that. And interestingly enough, I think it was in this book, relational archeologies that I was reading about, um, an Inuit practice to do with, uh, bones from animals, mm-hmm. um, taking, taking bones out uh, or actually practices that they do when they find bones. Uh, there was this practice where they would overturn the bones. Like if they found like a caribou mm. that died, they would turn the bones over because they actually believe that the spirit of the animal that's laying there with the bones down one way, like you get like bed sores. So mm. it would turn it over like as a, as a thing to help this animal in, in the afterworld. And so it, not that I, not that I exactly that I do that. I do actually, if I do find a bone, like a skull, and I pick it up and look at it, I actually put it back exactly the way I found it in the same little indentation. Oh, no I don't way. like to just toss it somewhere else for whatever reason. It's mm-hmm. just something that I do. Well, I do the I do the thing anytime I find a shed, I'll hang it in a tree. Mm-hmm. Unless it's a really, really nice shed. Then I'll <laughs> and then you bring it, then you bring it home. Yeah. But. Um, I do do a, a thing where I take what I'm trimming up um, animals, like if I got the tallow, the fat, a little bit of, you know, like stuff that in- inevitably goes back to nature, never goes in the garbage can, never goes in a landfill, put it in the freezer and I take it back out. But for me, and it doesn't always, it's not always perfect, but I have had animals for whatever reason, I just had a very, very strong feeling that I needed to return the bones and the trimmings to the actual spot I got the animal. Hmm. And so the big bear I got a couple of years ago, yeah, I took everything oh, right. back yeah. out. And that was a two kilometer pack up the mountain back to the spot that I got that bear. For whatever reason, I just felt hmm. everything that I didn't consume from the bear that those pieces had to go back mm. to where that bear came from. And I did, I packed it all back up the mountain. It was kind of neat. Like, you know, I went back, but the, it, it was, it was, I would, I would wait, uh, wait, wait until the winter and go back up there and skis. So, you know, well, I, not, I did not, I, not the next day. And I got, no, no, I didn't. <laughs> I got it in June and I went back up like in August or something like that. I was, I was, uh, get, uh, a, get an elk and then you got to, Oh, well, let's go drop Smart. these back. Yeah. Back yeah. Be the new Poor story again. Grizzly bear. Hunter mauled for the 12th Street season. Reverse pack out. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and I did it with a big whitetail buck I got a few years ago in the archery season. Uh, I just, for whatever reason, um, because that history of harvesting that buck actually spanned a couple of years, uh, encounters that I had with it previous years. <clears throat> Uh, for whatever reason, I just, that, and even after I make the bone broth, like the bo- the bones that are left over, I put that all together because mm-hmm. that's still part of the animal. I've extracted calories and nutrients and flavor out of that um, yeah. harvest, but that still has to go back as well. It doesn't go in the garbage can. 
And for whatever reason, I just felt that that stuff and the hide, which I don't always use because I have lots, lots of leather, it had to go back to that spot. And uh, I went back in the middle of the winter time, and there was too much snow, like to be able to drive back closer to mm-hmm. where I could pack in. And like it ended up being like about a five-ish kilometer round trip, you know, with this pack on with the stuff mm-hmm. and you know up to my shins in snow but it was like it didn't bother me yeah it just i felt that it had to happen usually what i feel is uh it needs to go back to the general area area that grew the animal because the animal moves around like it didn't live its whole entire life standing in the one spot that i harvested it at but it 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 came from a geographic area Mm -hmm. the plants the ecosystems everything built built that deer and I just feel for whatever reason that those parts need to go back to that area of, of mm. the land. Yeah. Um, so anyways, that's that's another little thing that I do. Uh, another thing is um, I have this necklace um, that's an elk ivory on it of the very first elk I ever harvested. Hmm. Uh, I was like 17 years old when I got it. And uh, for whatever reason, I just feel that uh, that elk and that she just needs to go with me hmm. out into the mountains. She's still going out, yeah, yeah. experiencing and, you know, the land because uh, a part of her is, is coming with me on every, every single hunt. Hmm. So, and it's interesting. I mean, uh, I have come across stuff uh, in my readings, especially in the archaeological stuff. In this one book, Relational Archaeology, talks about past cultures, relationships between... Um, objects and the relationship with people with it and the connection to hunting and there's some cultures that have to do with um, uh, amulets and rites of passage for young people when they when hunting and see the interesting thing is I haven't read this stuff and then been influenced and do it I've just for whatever had feelings that this is what I want to do, do and, and I've acted on them but then interestingly enough later on in my life I've read things about it and I'm like Oh, that's kind of interesting. Hmm. Like I'm not the first one to think of this or whatever. There's, there's yeah. some sort of, there's some sort of meaning to that, to being a human being and being a hunter, um, that's in our DNA. And mm-hmm. so I think o- opening yourself up, like I said, allowing yourself to think about it, acknowledge those feelings and maybe act on some of it. Um, you do the ritual of giving thanks and putting. Yeah, the vegetation the little, in the mouth. Little piece of, uh, little piece of conifer tree. Yeah, just cut a small little snip and put it in its mouth. So, that, like that, that's a that's a European yeah. thing. Like it's come from old world, right? And uh, um, it, it's it's a ritual, and it's kind of cool because I do believe that it came about for a reason in hunting, and it's been passed on as a ritual after the hunt, and. Uh, it seems to have a couple of different meanings. Um, last bite, first bite. Mm-hmm. So it means this is the animal's last bite, and you're 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 signaling or you're giving thanks to that's yeah. its last bite because the animal becomes your first bite. Mm-hmm. You know, because you're going you're going to to eat it, right? Um, and then it's also uh, I've also seen where it's it's like it's an offering to the animal's spirit of having some food to go into the afterworld. Mm-hmm. Like it's like you're giving it kind of like what the Egyptians did of, of putting, you know, the Pharaoh's 
favorite. Gold. Hey, you're my favorite person. You're going into the tomb <laughs> with them. It's like, lock you up. Uh, not quite the same, but it's it's sort of the idea yeah. of like, yeah, totally. of there's there's such a high level of respect uh, for that harvest that you're, that you're sending it on its way. So, mm-hmm. you know, so the, I, I want to have this conversation because I think these intangible entities and natural forces are important in hunting uh, for a new hunter or maybe an established hunter that's looking to, to elevate themselves. And, you know, I think it, what I'm talking about transcends just this feeling of saying, oh, when I go hunting, I feel connected to nature or I'm at peace or whatever. And it's like, there, there certainly is an aspect of hunting um, that that's part of, but I think what I'm talking about goes beyond that. Yeah. I'm just sort of like, oh, I'm out there, you know, in, in nature. And it's, it's really tapping into, you know, that thing where I said, where you're literally stepping into another, another world, mm-hmm. um, and, and, uh, getting in touch with those natural forces and intangible entities. And, and I honestly believe that if you can incorporate this into your hunting, um, It'll make you a better hunter. Yeah. It's the whole yeah. reason I'm having this podcast and talking about this, which nobody seems to want to talk about, is I do believe it'll make you a better hunter. Because I do believe there's a relationship <clears throat> of hunting and being able to step into that other world. You can go out there in the environment mm-hmm. and hunt. And if you're not, you go into the environment. <laughs> to, you know, anyways, maybe you'll get that joke. Toad towed the ship outside the environment but yes you can go out into the woods and go hunting but then you can step into this other world yeah. and i believe they're two different things so if you can figure out within yourself of of how these things work for you because i believe they're individual um and i also kind of believe that there's some people that hunt for the wrong reasons that these forces are not available to them. They're, they're just, they can still go out and be successful hunters. Mm-hmm. And I believe that's, that's where technology is overwhelming the natural world. But um, <clears throat> they may, those things may not be available to everybody, but they may be available to those that are allowing themselves to be open to it. Mm-hmm. That's what I kind of think. Is, is there some things there in hunting in the universe that are open if you can read the signals? Totally. <clears throat> and acknowledge them and act on them. I think that's the other part. So, so anyways, um, and, and if you can, if, if you can bring this into the way you hunt, how you practice hunting, I do believe it can make you a better hunter. It will explain lots of your quote-unquote unsuccessful days, months, years, trips, whatever, mm-hmm. uh, it can all put it into a giant picture for you and give meaning and context. And I think that's important. Um, so yeah, I, I want to share this with you as something for you to think about is cause, cause I do believe it'll, it'll, uh, it could create the opportunity to, to make you uh, a better, a better honey. Um, yeah, I think, I think every, every day that I've had a, uh, a successful big game hunt, there's always some sort of thing where you like, you follow that one feeling and it leads you to like, mm-hmm. yep. to, to success. Yep. I mean, I don't but think even, you just sort of, it, I mean, it doesn't even have to be like, you know, the, the clouds open up and say, 
you know, oh, like here's here's your buck. But even if like, it's just like, like a light shines on a little grassy yeah, hillside and there's yeah, a buck standing in the middle of it, doesn't even have to be that. Like I mean, it can it can even just be as much as like you're driving and you know you're trying to find a spot to go hike into and there's like one side road and another side road and you're just kind of like eh, I don't know about that. let's just go up here this one feels right like mm-hmm. you know even even if it's something just as simple as that or being like you know what like let's let's start at 10 o'clock tomorrow instead of of you know getting up at the crack of dawn like just feels like we kind of need to have a later start like some sort of something some sort of thing something that delays your I mean, that's interesting, you know, this, this, when you start or when you do something, um, because that to me can signal what it takes to get into the rhythm of things that are happening out there. Cause I do believe you can like get out of rhythm. Um, and there's things that are trying to put you in sync or in rhythm with, with what's happening out there. So the other thing, there's, there's another aspect of this that I think that can make you a better hunter uh, and getting in touch with and um, acknowledging these natural forces, intangible entities, is there's this thing out there in science and whatnot about animals' ability to sense intentions mm-hmm. and things in human beings. So there's actually science around dogs that, and you probably know this if you're a pet owner, like they just have this sixth sense of understanding signals, mm-hmm. thoughts, emotions, worries. Um, I've heard stuff about being like a horse handler, um, that horses have the ability to sense when you sense fear. And so they get scared and in the mountains with horses and that sort of stuff, uh, that is a recipe for disaster mm-hmm. and the horse hurting itself or, and you all together. Um, they just have this ability to sense, you know, those sorts of things. There's science around the fact that, um, that dogs can sense like quote unquote bad people, mm. like people that have bad intentions are bad people to the level of like understanding like morality in what's right and wrong. Uh, There's stuff out there too about wild animals and their ability to kind of sense things and, and whether they're, they're tapping into an energy that's coming from you that it can sense things. There's also stuff to do with depending on your personal energy and mindset um, and stress loads and stuff. You're actually giving off pheromones. Mm. Um, that if those things move in the wind, things can detect those, uh, pheromones and they're getting signals like from that, that can mm-hmm. mean danger. So I, you know, part of all of this stuff, uh, I find in being open and understanding these, these forces in nature, um, creates a calming effect for me. Um, because I believe it's like, it's either meant to happen or it's not. Mm-hmm. And so I'm very calm uh, about all, everything that happens out there. And on the days, like on this past Remembrance Day, the day I got that buck, I was just in an unbelievably state of calmness all day long, Mm -hmm. everything, because I felt something 
was guiding me yeah, that, yeah. that day uh, on Remembrance Day. And um, I think that's important in hunting for a whole lot of reasons is being, is self-control. Mm-hmm. And it could be anything from animals being able to sense energy, intentions, pheromones, whatever. Um, but it also plays a role in, in you know, how good you are with your shot placement and all that sort of yeah, stuff, your, that level your decision of decision making. Like, I mean, if you're, if you're excited or anxious or stressed, your ability to like think clearly and make the right decision can be, you know, altered or like, you know, you rush something, right? Like, it's like, we need to get up there now. Mm-hmm. And it's like, so it's like, you know, you, you book it up to the, the top of a ridge and along the way, rather than sneaking your way up, you know, you, you bump something and, mm-hmm. and you're like, oh shit, like if yeah. you would have just slowed down. Cause there, there's, a, there's an element of all of this that I feel like you're calm, you're acting on these forces and things unfold naturally. They feel calm and they work out better. And then there's times where you feel like you're forcing yourself and your will on yeah. nature and that doesn't tend to work out. And, um, yeah. So I think those are, you know, those are some things that I think, um, in thinking about this, maybe, maybe putting this into practice that I, I do actually honestly believe it can make you a better hunter and, and, and it can, um, just amplify your entire experience of hunting that, that, that if you're a new hunter and you're questioning yourself or you're thinking about getting into hunting and you're kind of worried about this whole, you know, like kill aspect and all this kind of stuff, this is a thing that you can incorporate into your own personal hunting, which can completely change your entire experience mm-hmm. and connection and understanding <clears throat> of hunting and answering that question, um, uh, you know, for yourself. Why do I want to hunt? Why do I want, you know, to take an animal's life in order to you know, to be responsible for getting my own food. This is a whole entire thing that you can incorporate into hunting that, that is there, that is going to completely change your relationship to hunting, to the wildlife yeah. and the way you feel about what, what has transpired after your hunt. And, and this, this is just not something that you're probably going to come across researching hunting in North America mm-hmm. right now is this whole aspect of talking about this and how you can incorporate these things into hunting. Cause it is just not, the man thing to do right like it's you know it's it's all about the slam high five long range dropped them man what a hog pig monster like there's this whole Mm -hmm. techno technology eco ego driven kind of thing out there and and i think it's very very difficult i think for a new hunter to step into this world maybe wanting some aspect of that in how they hunt yeah because i just don't think it's out there and it's not talked about so i'm, I'm hoping this helps you a little bit uh, folks the second aspect of being more open you know to these natural forces and intangible entities is i think it's important because i do believe i do believe this for myself that some of these forces these signals these experiences that as a hunter i'm meant to be a conduit to bring messages out of that natural world back into the human world to be able to advocate for the mm. things that can't speak. Mm-hmm. I absolutely believe that, mm. that there's been experiences and things where I've literally stood there looking into the eye of a big elk. And when it was all over where he went, the whole experience was meant 
to tell me about something that was important to elk. Hmm. And it was like, it was a message that said, you need to ensure that I can still go here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Kind, kind of thing, kind yeah. of thing. And yeah. again, if you're open to that, reflecting on what that means, what you're being told, it'll make you a better conservationist as well. Yeah. Cause you're really coming at it from a personal perspective. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, that's a big, big world out there. And I think there's a lot of opportunities for different, different ways of incorporating this, uh, into your hunting. Uh, I also think that opening your mind to this sort of stuff is going to be a key, um, to working with indigenous peoples in Canada in the future for co-wildlife management and understanding, um, why they have, um, different ways of hunting, harvest different animals, why they hunt at different times of the year than what we do. Um, I think tapping into understanding these, that there's bigger things out there in stepping into this other world and it's different for different people. It's different for an indigenous people. It's different for different indigenous peoples, no matter where you go in the world. It's not, it's not the same everywhere these relationships with the natural world and with wildlife are, are varied, um, throughout time and throughout place, but understanding it from a personal level will make you relate to other ways of thinking. And and I think that's going to be important for, uh, for us moving forward. There's, there's a, uh, an, a person out there's last name's, um, Descartes, um, and he's written these concepts called relation, relational ontologies. And it's kind of, there's four different categories of how different cultures in the world relate to wildlife. Um, there's totemism, animism, analogism, and naturalism. And there are different ways that different cultures have viewed animals, um, there's a concept of there's humans and then there's Mm non-humans and even within a species of animals, like let's say polar bears, there's some polar bears that are just polar bears and there's other polar bears that are non-human, they're (laughs) beings and they're thinking like people, their intentions are like people, they're looking at people thinking the same things that they're thinking. And, Mm -hmm. and so they recognize that even within species, there's different animals. Um, and so they've developed these different relationships with wildlife that are based on these different belief systems, which are, that kind of fall under these four categories. The important thing is here is Western cultures have adopted a way of seeing wildlife, which falls into this category of naturalism which basically is a, is a scientific based way of looking at wildlife that they don't think like us. They don't look like us. They are separate entities and they're not beings. They're not non-human beings. They're, they're just these biological units that are programmed Mm -hmm. by their DNA, which are very different than the other, Mm -hmm. the other relationships, a way of thinking of animals. So, so we're raised on that thought, which very much is not in line with a lot of indigenous beliefs. And it is, it is the, this Western view, the scientific view of animals as biological units drives wildlife management, drives conservation, and it drives what most hunters think our place in our relationship is of hunting. Uh, and it's not the only way. And I do believe 
that belief system and way of thinking is one of the things that's causing conflict mm -hmm. uh, in Canada right now with with indigenous peoples trying to exercise um, their rights in hunting and fishing and wildlife and land management. So um, so that's another benefit, I think, of, of maybe incorporating this whole aspect of, you know, trying to explore and reflect on natural forces and, and uh, these other entities out there. So that's what I wanted to talk about. Yeah, no, that was really good. Um, hope you all enjoyed it. It's very different, I think, than a lot of other podcasts that we've had that have been very kind of factual and science-based and you know heavy, yeah. information heavy and stuff I, I just uh yeah my experience this this year on remembrance day and putting uh a last bunch of years into context um i just wanted to uh, put this out there mm -hmm. as, as a perspective um hope it has some value to you and maybe what you want to start incorporating in your hunting career and um yeah there's a danger of it because i don't think uh a lot of people some people will take this the right way. It's mm -hmm. like, like I said, it's like uh, crystal hippies. Some guys will probably think we're moon worshiping yeah. hippies after this. Well, you guys got a UFO pad in your yard too. <laughs> <laughs> like it's like we are not wearing tinfoil helmets right now. Yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just just an armadillo helmet. Yeah. Um. Anyways, um, let us know what you think of this conversation, and let us know if you want to explore this conversation further uh, in some way, shape, or form, even if it's just at a personal level. You want to um, write to us about something uh, that's in this whole um, area that, that we've just been talking about and, and fitting it into your into your way of hunting. So we got one more podcast uh, left in December. Um, just in closing here, um, we're going to be doing some new things uh, in the new year, and I really want to start to put an emphasis on helping you, uh, helping new hunters. And so this is a bit of a call to action. Um, please write to us, uh, hcmedia at thehunterconservationist.com, uh, or find Curtis or myself on, on Instagram. Uh, write to us and tell us as a newer hunter, um, what's missing out there to help you? Uh, what do you need? Uh, what are things that you need help on? Different ways of looking at things. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of stuff out there designed to help new hunters. Um, a particular topic might be explained by a bunch of different people in a bunch of different ways. Um, but is there something that's missing? Is there something that's, there's a gap? Uh, let us know because uh, we really want to start um, doing some stuff to deliver content to be specifically helping you. No question is off the table. Uh, let us let us know and see see where we can help you take those things. And that's uh, wrapping up this episode. Anything else to throw in? No, I think uh, that nothing at the top of my mind. That's okay. Well, uh, let us know. What do you think of natural forces and intangible entities in hunting? Do you have some ideas? Have you had some experiences that you're like, hmm, now that I've heard them say that, yeah. I'm now 
thinking back on this moment and da 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 da, um, let us know. I want to know if more people do this, think about this, or have thought about it, but weren't really embracing it. All right, folks, we will see you in the next episode.